And since it's only one verse, I'm going to read it. It seems silly to bring somebody up for one verse, but we're going to, we're going to do it that way. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And Lord, as we come under the authority of your word, we pray that you would have full reign in hearts and lives. We pray, Lord, for the ability to hear clearly you speaking. I pray, Father, for all here, the children, the adults, that all of us, Lord, would hear something that would be impactful, that, Lord, we would hear your voice, the voice of the shepherd speaking today. So speak, O oh God, and we will obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? That's my question. Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? This is a huge question. There could be nothing more important for me to ask you this morning than this question. And I realize just by asking that question, I risk confusing some of you. Some of you are going to misunderstand what I just meant by that question. Because I said, are you a true disciple? And there is a teaching prominent today that there are Christians and then there are disciples. And Christians are just your everyday, average, garden variety believer. You know, we believe in Jesus, we're saved, we have our sins forgiven, but the disciple is sort of a, a cut above the rest. He's like the spiritual marine, you know. He, he's the one that has fully dedicated his life to Christ, and he's given over his life to Jesus, and he allows Jesus to be the Lord and master of his life. So he, he's like super committed or super spiritual. And so when I ask you, are you a true disciple of Jesus? You may think, well, probably not, but that doesn't matter because I'm a Christian. And I want to dispel that notion just from the very beginning. The Bible knows nothing about two tiers of Christianity, believers and then disciples. You know, believers, those who believe in Jesus as Savior, accept Him as Savior. A disciple is one who bows to Him and obeys Him as Lord. And there's no such distinction in Scripture. Either you are a disciple or you're not a Christian according to the scriptures. In Acts 11.26, it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So what were they called first? Disciples. Every single one of them was called a disciple, and then the world gave them the nickname of Christian. So you cannot be a Christian unless you're a disciple. You can't be a disciple unless you're a Christian. They're synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. So my question to you really is, are you a Christian? Are you saved? Are your sins forgiven? Are you going to heaven? That's the question I'm asking. And I think that you can answer that question from our text today, if you'll listen closely and carefully. Now let's go back to the context of the passage. Remember two weeks ago, we were talking about this question that Jesus asked his disciples. He said, who do men say that I am? And they came back and said, well, some of them say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others think that you're Elijah. Others think you're that prophet who was to come. And Jesus said, well, that's all well and good, but who do you say that I am? That's what I really want to know. Who do you think I am? And Peter speaks up for the rest of them, and he says, you are the Christ 
of God. The word Christ means anointed one, Messiah. You are the one that all the prophets have been telling us about for centuries. You are the prophet and the priest and the king that was foretold for hundreds of years. You are the prophet who is to teach us and the priest to save us and the king to rule us. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's really interesting. At that point, Jesus starts instructing them severely not to tell this to anyone. And we think, Lord, why in the world would you do that? I mean, don't you want everybody to know that you are the Messiah, the Son of God? The problem is that they had a distorted view of what the Messiah actually would be when he came. They believed that the Messiah was going to be a political or a military Messiah, that he would come riding a great white steed, he would overthrow the Romans, throw off the Roman yoke, he would take the throne there in Jerusalem, and he'd be sort of a king general like David, and he would deliver his people from the Romans, and the Jewish people would be the top dogs, the top nation on the earth at that time. And they'd have freedom again. Well, Jesus did come to be a deliverer, but not a political or a military uh, conqueror. He came to be a spiritual deliverer, someone to deliver us from sin. So that's why he says, don't go and tell anybody this. If he had, what's going to happen? People think Jesus is this military or political king. They're going to try to force him to become king, which is what they tried to do in John chapter 6 at one point. And Jesus didn't come to be any kind of earthly king. His kingdom is not of this world. And that's why he says in verse 23, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. You see, they were expecting the Messiah to be somebody... They were expecting the Messiah to be somebody who would come and live in pomp and splendor and glory, sort of this regal lifestyle. And Jesus said, you've got it all wrong. I am the Messiah, but I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. It's not what you think. The Messiah that you dreamed about doesn't exist. When I come back a second time, yes, it's going to be a bit different. But this first time, I'm coming to suffer, be rejected, and die. And notice that in verse 23, Jesus connects his particular lifestyle with the lifestyle of everybody who would come after him. You see, Jesus is saying in verse 22, I have a cross to go to. But in verse 23, he says, everybody who follows me also has a cross they're going to. Notice in verse 22, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. There is a divine necessity laid upon Christ to, be, to suffer and then to die for the sins of mankind. He must, if anybody is to be saved. But there's also a divine necessity that is given to all those who follow Jesus. There's another must in verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, you, we understand what the word must means, right? It, it, it's something that has to happen. It cannot not happen. If anyone wants to come after Jesus, this has to take place in their life. We're not talking about options, something that may or may not take place and you still make it to heaven. Every person who goes to heaven goes through this experience 
They must deny themselves. They must take up their cross every day. And they must follow Jesus. Now in this text, there are three conditions for discipleship laid out by Jesus very, very clearly. Three terms. If you want to answer the question, am I a true disciple? You need to be able to say yes to these three questions. Do you deny yourself? Do you take up your cross daily? And do you follow Jesus? Because if you don't, you're not coming after Jesus. So let's examine those. First one. A true disciple denies himself. He denies himself. Now when I say he denies himself, I'm not saying that he experiences self-denial. There's a difference between self-denial and denying yourself. A lot of religious people practice self-denial at certain portions of the year. They call it Lent. And they say, well, I'm going to give up sweets for Lent. Or I'll give up tobacco or caffeine or you know, liquor, or whatever it happens to be. I'll, I'll give up those extravagances for 40 days, and then I'll just go back to them later. So they're practicing a form of self-denial. Jesus wasn't talking about that. He says he must deny himself. Himself. Not certain things out there, who he is. He must deny his very own self. This is the very same word that Peter uh, is, is expressed about Peter when it said that the Peter denied the Lord three times. You remember that? It's the same word. So when Peter denied the Lord, what was he doing to the Lord? Well, he was disowning the Lord. He was repudiating the Lord. He was turning his back on his Lord at that moment. And if you were to deny yourself, guess what? You have to repudiate yourself. You've got to turn your back on yourself and you've got to Disown yourself. Now I know if, as soon as I say that, we've got all kinds of people going, what in the world is Brian talking about? Because what I'm talking to you about today goes countercultural to anything probably you've heard in the church. I hope not, because these are very plain words of Jesus. But we have so embraced worldly thinking in the church that we do not understand what Jesus meant when he said these words. Okay, let's, let's think about what it means to deny yourself for a minute. This means that self has no rights. It means self has no authority any longer to make decisions for itself. It means that self gets off the throne and Jesus ascends to the throne and Jesus rules and governs the life. Do you see what I mean by denying yourself? It means a complete submission to the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. In all areas. We can't hold any area back. He is Lord, not of one or two or three little areas of your life. He's Lord of your life. Now, who does this apply to? Okay. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, He was saying to them all, now I want you to ask yourself the question, who did he mean by all? Did he mean only those who were already following him or anybody who had ever come to follow him? Well, look, if you want to, with me real quickly at Mark 8.34. Mark makes this a little bit more clear. Mark says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me. 
So this is not just addressed to the disciples themselves. This is addressed to all the people that were following after Jesus, believer or unbeliever. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to follow me, here are the terms. And he's not just saying to the super committed or super spiritual. He's saying to anybody out there. And so if there's somebody here this morning who has never become a disciple, a believer, a follower of Jesus, I've got some really good news for you. Jesus lays out the terms right here. Now, this is not exactly the way you become a Christian. This is simply the lifestyle you embrace once you embrace him. You see, the disciple does not get to follow whatever lifestyle he chooses. He has to follow the lifestyle of his master. To become a Christian means you become united to Jesus. You're one with Jesus. So if Jesus goes to a cross, guess what? Everybody who unites themselves to Christ, they go to that same cross with him. If Jesus denied himself, so do his followers. So this applies to every person. It's talking about complete submission to the Lordship of Christ. And I want you to notice something else. This isn't talking about we just have to be willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Jesus didn't say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must be willing to deny himself. He left out those two little words. He said, you have to do it. We get that? We have to live this way. <laughs> that, that's part and parcel of following after Jesus. You live like the master lived. So it's not just willing, it's something that we actually do. And as I've already said, this is completely counter-cultural to us. We have probably been taught from little boys and girls, especially if you've heard or been in the church your life, doctrines connected to the fact of, of self-love and self-esteem and self-fulfillment. And we actually believe that these terms are biblical terms because they've been repeated so many times in the church. The church basically has embraced the thinking of the world, added a few words like God and Jesus and faith, brought it into the church, baptized it, and said, this is biblical. I want to challenge that whole thinking this morning. And I hope I can get you to challenge in your mind the thinking that self-love is a biblical concept, self-esteem is a biblical concept, and seeking your own self-fulfillment is a biblical concept. I want to challenge that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul lists all these sins. And the very first sin he lists is they are lovers of self. So to have self-love, is that a good thing, folks? That's an evil thing. That's an evil, wicked thing, to love yourself over Christ. Have you ever heard the teaching... You'll never be able to love anybody else until you first learn to love yourself. So the first duty, the first thing you've got to do is learn to love yourself. Anybody ever hear that doctrine? It's prevalent everywhere. The problem is that we already love ourselves way, way too much. <laughs> we already do that. It's instinctive. That's because we're fallen creatures. We have, we're self-centered, self-focused. That's where all of our attention goes anyway. Jesus wasn't saying you've got to learn to love yourself. He says, you guys already love yourselves so much. Just go out and love somebody else a little bit like you already love yourself and you'll be doing pretty good. That's what he meant when he said love your neighbor as you love yourself. But in 2 Timothy 3, 2, he says it's a sin to love self. And in verse 4, he says these people who are sinners, 
They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But we have adopted this psychobabble, this self-esteem doctrine, this self-love, this self-fulfillment. Live for self. You're number one. And somehow we, we've embraced that, brought it into the church, and we think it's even biblical. We even have a magazine. You guys ever seen the magazine when you're checking out at the grocery store? Self magazine. I mean, that's the epitome. <laughs> we, and, and this is the way the world thinks. Self is God. Self is the center of the universe. And somehow we have been so blinded. We're like the frog in the kettle. We're slowly boiling to death. We slowly am embracing the, the thinking of the world. What I want you to do is ask yourself some questions this morning. Is self-esteem something that you've ever read about in Scripture? Is self-love ever something that is posited as something positive that you should embrace as a Christian? We need to have Bible filters on our minds, folks, so that we reject things that are not biblical and we receive things that are. Recently, the co-pastor of the largest church in America had this to say in one of the Sunday morning services. And I, I can already tell you, some of you know it's coming. It's a woman. She said, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives Him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that is what makes God happy. Amen? And guess what happened after she said amen? Thunderous applause and lots of amens because everybody has embraced this particular view. This is the new mantra within the Christian church today. It's God's will for you to be happy. And the way you can know what you should do in life is just ask yourself, does it make me happy to do it? My goodness. I remember a time maybe 16, 18 years ago when I was pastoring a church in the Bay Area and Debbie and I sat down with a woman and she told us that she had decided that she was going to leave her husband and divorce him and marry this other fellow that she had found online. And we, we asked, what, what in the world, what in the world would make you come to that conclusion that you're going to do this? And she, she had been up to that point, a church member. We thought that she was a faithful believer and follower of Christ. And she said, well, God wants me to be happy. And that's the only reason she had to have for divorcing her husband and remarrying this man that she married online or that she found online. It's the new mantra. I mean, just listen a little bit. You, you t hear Christians or people that attend church say all the time, well, it's God's will that I be happy, right? Is there one verse of Scripture in the entire Bible that says it's God's will for you to be happy? Find, tell it to me. Anybody know that verse? I've never been able to find it. It is, there is a verse of Scripture that says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Do you know what sanctification means? Holiness. Do you know what? It is God's will for you to be holy. It's not necessarily His will for you to be happy. Do you think it makes people happy to deny themselves, take up a cross, and follow Jesus? Not always. A lot of times, it's the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. It, it it's ex can be excruciating to bow your will to the will of Jesus. But He requires that 
of all who would follow him. There's another verse of scripture that says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Over in 1 Peter 4.19, he says, Suffer according to the will of God. So what is the will of God? Suffering, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything, and personal holiness. We know that that is the will of God. We have no verse of Scripture that ever tells us it's God's will for us to be happy. But that's what we think. And I, I want to I challenge you to think biblically rather than just what society, what the world throws at you, what you hear on TV or on the radio. Let's think the way Jesus wants us to think as biblically-minded Christians. You see, this doctrine puts man at the center of the universe. It throws God out. God is the only rightful heir of the center of the universe, and we're just revolve around him. But if God exists to make you and me happy, that means he's our servant. That means I'm the center of the universe, and he's just my servant doing what I want him to do. And that's a man-centered view of Scripture, of life, of the gospel, of everything. Back in 1991, I spent a solid year studying the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And I couldn't get away from it. I thought about it day and night. I read about it. I listened to it. I studied it in Scripture. I read books. I was listening to audio tapes. Back then, you didn't have so much online. I was listening to tapes back then. And it just possessed me. I, I had to come to the grips with, is this true? Is God really sovereign over all of life? And my, the conclusion of my study at that time was, yes, he absolutely is. God is a sovereign king. And so I had to change my thinking. It's not true that there's a big man and a little God. You'll find that picture of Christianity presented in many different places today. The Bible presents a great big God and a little man. That's what the Bible presents. We're little. We're small. We're tiny. We're puny in the sight of this all-holy, blazing, magnificent, glorious God. The Bible says, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself the question, Why does God do everything that He does? Have you ever asked yourself that? It's a really important question. What motivates God? <laughs> Why does God come to the conclusion to do this and not do that or do this thing over here? I wish I had the time this morning, but some Sunday morning I want to take a sermon and just answer that question. Why does God do everything that He does? The biblical answer is He does it for His own glory. You can trace this from Genesis all the way through Revelation. I can give you dozens and dozens of texts that tell us why God does what He does. And He doesn't do it to make us happy. He doesn't do it because we're the center of His universe. He does it because God is uppermost in God's own affections. That God loves and values God supremely. God's will and God's desires are what God, motivates God to do what God does. And the reason we have a problem with that is because we're self-centered and we don't truly see the glory and magnificence of our great God. So that's what would prompt John Piper to make this statement. The love of God is not God's making much of us, but God's saving us from self-centered sin 
so that we can enjoy making much of him forever. Do you see the difference between that statement and the earlier statement by the co-pastor of the biggest church in America? The one focuses on man as the center of the universe. This one focuses on God being the center of the universe. And we just get the pleasure of knowing this great God who in sheer mercy and grace has saved our soul. So the very first requirement, if you want to follow Jesus, is that you get off the throne of your life and Jesus ascends and you start taking orders from him as the new master and the new king and the new Lord. He becomes your boss in every area. So, well, I'll get to that in just a minute. That's the first one. Number two, a true disciple takes up his cross daily. A true disciple takes up his cross daily. Now, what in the world does it mean to take up your cross? Let's try to put ourselves in the picture of a, a Jewish person in the first century. If someone in the first century had taken up their cross, what's true about that person? Yeah, they've been condemned as a criminal and they're being led away to execution. They're going to die. They're on a one-way trip. They're not coming back from this trip. Their old life is over. It's gone. They will never live that old life again. They're saying goodbye permanently to everything about their old way of life and they're heading to this place called death. For us, to take up our cross daily means that we say goodbye to the old life where we basically ran our own life. We did what we wanted to do. We made our own decisions. We governed our own life. We were on the throne. We spent our money the way we wanted to spend it. We spent our time the way we wanted to spend it. We indulged in whatever pleasures we wanted to as long as we could get away with it and not get arrested. Right? I mean, that's, that's the unregenerate life. He lives for self. And to become a Christian means you die to self. You die to that old life. The old self has been crucified with Christ, according to Romans 6. It's over. He's a dead man. And there's this new life that has come in his place. A new life of following Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He can't do it. This is like entrance into the kingdom. You enter into this new lifestyle and the very first thing you see is a cross. And you embrace it as yours. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul said, You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Now, we sometimes make a mistake as Christians thinking that we are our own to do what we will. We need to be reminded from time to time that's simply not the case. We are the slaves of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus' own brothers like James and Jude, they open their letters, James, a slave of my brother, Jesus Christ. They recognize the absolute sovereignty and majesty and authority of Christ and they were willing to lay down their life for him. The original 11 of the 11 apostles, 10 of them went on to die for Christ as martyrs. John was sent in exile to an island where he received the vision of the book of Revelation. These men were, 
were willing to take up a cross. Sometimes literally, it's tradition says that Peter died on a cross, but he didn't feel worthy to die like his Lord, so he said, if you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. That's part of being a Christian, is accepting whatever rejection, whatever suffering, even death, if it comes to that, for your faith in him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who lived in Europe during World War II, was involved in helping the, many of the Jews that were being slaughtered wholesale. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he said in that book, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I believe he's absolutely right. We die to self. We die to our rights. We die to the old life. And folks, this is one of the evidences that we've been saved. It's an evidence of salvation. It is a horrible mistake for us to look back at some point in our life where we made a decision and say, okay, I know I'm a Christian because I made a decision back when I was 12. Or I walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade when I was 14. Or I prayed with my mom and my dad when I was six. If you, if you have to look back to a point in your life at some decision you made in your past, but you see no evidence currently in your life now, that's a very, very bad place to be in. Because you are probably deluding yourself about your Christianity. You need to look at your lifestyle right now. You know, Jesus didn't say, if any man wishes to come after me, let him make a decision for me right now. Let him pray a prayer with me right now. Let him walk an aisle or raise a hand. He said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, let him embrace a totally new lifestyle of following Jesus wherever Jesus goes. And that's evidence of salvation. If a man, because of his faith in Christ, embraces the Calvary road, embraces the path that Jesus leads him down, that's evidence that this man is truly converted. See, there's a, a huge difference between true conversion and making some decision for Christ. Probably many of us, if not all of us, have made a decision for Christ at some point. How many of you was, was that a true conversion? Where it caused you to begin a lifestyle of denying self, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. That's what's important here. Who cares about a decision? 95% of the decisions that are made at a mass evangelistic crusades are bunk. You can't find that person in church a year from the time he makes his decision. He's not following a life of discipleship. He's gone back to his old life. It's, it's a spurious, it's a false conversion. A true conversion is permanent. If you're converted, you will be converted for the rest of your life. You're not going to go in and out of, of grace. You're not going to go in and out of salvation. You'll be saved for the rest of your life, and your life will show it. 1 John chapter 3 says that you cannot go on practicing sin once the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you because he won't let it. He's going to be convicting you and pointing it out and, and, and uh, disciplining you, chastising you if you go on in sin. He won't let you live the same life you used to live. So a true disciple denies himself. A true disciple takes up his cross daily. And I'll, I'll say this other thing. This is not just an evidence that you've been saved. This is a way to tell if you're actually growing in your faith. You see, if the essence of the Christian life is submission to Christ, 
then growth in the Christian life is measured by increasing submission to Christ. Are you growing as a Christian? And by that I mean, are you recognizing the Lordship of Christ over more and more areas of your life and obeying His Word when it comes to those specific areas? Are you giving up control to things you'd rather not do and saying yes to Jesus and no to the old sinful patterns? We call that sanctification or holiness. That's an evidence that you're growing in grace. Sometimes we think that growth in grace simply means that we, we come to know more doctrine. We know more of the Bible. We read more Christian books. And so, yeah, I'm growing because I have more intellectual understanding. But you know, real growth means it's not just what you know, it's what you do with what you know. What are you doing with what you know? Are you living out the Christian life? Really? As a servant of Christ? Him being Lord, you taking your orders from Him. And to, to make this as clear as I can, it means that when you come to a decision in your life, you think, what does Jesus want me to do here? I'm not free to make whatever decision I want. What does He want me to do? And if you don't know, you search the Bible. Because He's told us <laughs> in most areas of life what He wants us to do in the Scriptures. And you search the Bible to find the answer, and then by the grace of God, you, you, if it's difficult for you, you pray and say, Lord, help me to do what is righteous in this particular instance. So that's what I mean by, by bowing down to the Lordship of Jesus. So a true disciple denies himself, takes up his cross daily, and thirdly, a true disciple follows Christ. He follows Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus is our example. He's calling us to walk in the very steps. I mean, take, take a look where his feet went. The imprint, his footsteps. We are to place our feet in his footsteps. Imagine him walking down a sandy beach and you're following after him and you're putting your feet in the very steps that he's trodden. That's the idea here. We are to embrace the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So be an imitator of God. Walk in love like Christ walked in love. Follow after Jesus Christ. So I think first of all this would mean that we follow Christ's beliefs. A Christian believes what Jesus believed, right? If Jesus believed it, that's good enough for me. That settles it. What did Jesus believe? Jesus believed in the Bible. Jesus said the scripture can't be broken. He said no jot or tittle shall pass away from the law. Jesus believed in the word of God over and over again as he taught. He said, have you not read in the scriptures? That's what he based his truth upon. Jesus also believed in... Two parents, Adam and Eve. Jesus didn't believe in evolution. Matthew 19. He quotes Genesis 2, I think it's 2.21. Might be off there because I haven't looked it up. But anyway, Jesus quotes the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, which has to do with our two parents, Adam and Eve, and he embraced it. He believed that. Jesus believed in a, in a literal flood. 
He believed in Noah's flood. He believed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire falling from heaven. Jesus believed that Jonah was literally swallowed by, swallowed by a great fish. <laughs> Jesus believed everything in these scriptures. Jesus also believed in heaven and hell. He talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Jesus believed in the evil of man. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? He believed in the wickedness of man. And Jesus believed in the necessity of being born again if we would ever enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, you must be born again. So we as Christians, if we're to follow in His steps, we believe what Jesus believed. We believe all these things. But it's not just His beliefs that we embrace, it's His lifestyle. What was the lifestyle of Jesus? If we were to walk where Jesus walked, where did he walk? He walked in obedience to his Father. He lived out a life of prayer. He lived a life of unselfish service to other people. He lived a life of humility, of patience and persecution. He prayed for the very people who were murdering him. He lived a life of kindness and zeal. And holiness. You couldn't flatter Jesus, and Jesus didn't go around flattering other people. You couldn't buy Jesus' favor. He was a man of uncompromising integrity. He spoke the truth and nothing but the truth. If he needed to, he would call religious leaders snakes, whitewash tombs. He loved to hang out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And he loved to teach them about God and the kingdom. He would kneel before his disciples and he would take their dirty, smelly feet in his hands and he would wash them and dry them off with a towel. He would take a cord of whips and fix that cord and drive the money changers who were getting rich off of the people there in the temple. This is the master that has called us. And if we are to be disciples, this is the life that he's called us to live. A holy indignation towards sin when we find it. A humility in our life, a life of prayer and service and holiness and love for other people. This is the kind of life he calls all of his people to live because it's the life he lived. So let me just ask you this. I started off by saying, are you a true disciple of Jesus? Does your life look like Jesus' life? Have you embraced his lifestyle? Are you making progress in it? Have you embraced his beliefs and his lifestyle, his priorities? Are his priorities your priorities? Are his interests your interests? Are what he was passionate about, are you passionate about that, the glory of his Father? Do you love what he loves and hate what he hates? These are the questions we have to honestly ask ourselves today. George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists who have ever lived, he lived in the 1700s, once described in a sermon that there was a cart that was going to haul off a bunch of criminals to the gallows to be hanged by their neck until they were dead. And as these criminals got into the cart, they started to argue with each other about who got the best seat in the cart. And that so struck Whitfield because he thought, does man have no concern for his soul?
Here they're being led away to their execution and they're not thinking about God or judgment or heaven or hell. They're thinking about who gets to sit where in the cart. It reminds me of when we were kids, we would do the same thing. I get to sit in the front seat. You know, we're always arguing about that. And, and we're being led away to our execution. If you think about it, we're all going to die. Life is fleeting. Life is uncertain. How concerned are we about where we're going to be in the next life? Or are we all consumed with our position or our riches or our, our place? If we are, something's horribly wrong. Satan has been able to blind us, if that's true. I'm going to quote here from one of the famous Puritans, Richard Baxter. I'm going back to the 1600s now. This guy lived in the 1600s. He wrote this big book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And this is what he had to say. Lord, what a strange madness is this, that men who know they must presently enter upon unchangeable joy or pain should live as uncertain what shall be their doom as if they had never heard of any such state. Yea, and live as quietly and merrily in this uncertainty as if all were made sure and there were no danger. Are they awake or asleep? What do they think on? Where are their hearts? If they have but a weighty suit at law, how careful are they to know whether it will go for or against them? If they were to be tried for their lives at an earthly bar, how careful would they be to know whether they should be saved or condemned, especially if their care might surely save them? If they be dangerously sick, they shall inquire of the physician, What think you, sir? Shall I escape or not? But in the business of their salvation, they are content to be uncertain. Now that's true. You go out and interview a hundred people. Find out how concerned they are for their soul. And then find out if they were convicted of some kind of capital crime, if they would have the same level of nonchalance about the whole affair. <laughs> you know? Of course they wouldn't. Man is so concerned about his temporary life here and now, and he cares nothing for the life to come. And we've got it all backwards. Jesus in the very next verse, he who saves his life is going to lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, he's going to save it. Jesus puts all the emphasis on the life to come, and we put it all on the life here. And we make a horrible mistake when we do that. Let me just ask you, what concern do you have for your own soul? Do you care about it? Does it ever keep you up at night? Do you ever give it more than a glancing momentary thought? Does it cause you real anguish at times to know, am I saved? Am I a disciple? Am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? Do you care about that question? Well, all of us should care about that question. And the only way you can say, yes, I am on my way to heaven is to answer, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus. And the only way you can say, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus, is by saying, yes, I am denying myself. Yes, I'm taking up my cross daily. And yes, I am following in the steps of Jesus Christ. Do not let some decision you may have happened to make 10 or 15 or 20 years ago delude you into thinking that you're on your way to heaven if your life doesn't match up to your profession today. Don't make that dreadful, fatal eternal mistake. Come to Jesus. Ask yourself, 
What's my life like right now? Where is my heart now? What are my priorities like now? Not 10 years ago when I somehow made a decision. Where is it today? Am I following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? Now, if you'd have to say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's me or not. I'm not sure if I'm a true disciple. Well, become a disciple today. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ right now. Acknowledge that you're his slave. He's your Lord. From now on, he will tell you what he wants you to do and you'll be happy to take orders from him. Really, folks, there's, there's no better life than that anyway. I mean, I'm not trying to persuade you by telling you it's a better life. I'm just telling you the truth. There is, there's no more better life than living a life obedient to Jesus Christ. If you are not a disciple, surrender your life today. Give him the throne of your life. Get self off the throne and invite Jesus to come and take up lordship and mastery over your life today. Let's pray. Father, would you do a work today in, in hearts, those that are saved, those that are lost. I pray, Lord, for those that are lost, that they would embrace Christ as king and begin to following him, follow him in the way he trods. And Lord, those that are, are saved, Lord, may you help us to make progress in our Christian life by submitting more and more to your rule and not to ignore your voice or to try to make justification or, excuse, or excuses for your voice when we don't like it, but to bow to it and to find true life indeed in you, Lord. And we pray all this in your holy name. Amen.